You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. Welcome to the Catholic Psyche. This is Sarah. This is Sheree. And Deacon Basil. <laughs> Perfect. Someday we'll get this. Well, the problem is, is that when we do these like through Zoom or whatever else, it's like now everyone's in a different position every week, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so it's like, I, I don't know who, which order we're going in or anything like that. So counterclockwise. When we do it in person, blocking. we can like look at the next person. Right. Precisely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, very well cool. I miss seeing you guys in person. I've been yeah. dying to book a flight and come see you. That would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be great. What are we talking about, Sarah? Um, I hate it when you do this because we just we just talked about this thirty seconds before we started recording. We are going to be talking about compassion fatigue and what that means, especially for people who are highly sensitive and empathic, and the implications of burnout. Did I get everything? That's good. Um, wonderful. Yeah. So, so compassion fatigue in general. And, you know, I, I, I uh, studied, uh, you know, my master's degree in theology was actually on um, the app. My thesis was on the application of early desert fathers to clerical burnout in the modern times and, uh, and kind of this concept. And I think, you know, compassion fatigue, burnout, we have all of these, these kind of synonyms that talk pretty much about the same thing. I don't know that most people on the street would say compassion fatigue, I think they'd probably say burnout, right? And um, yeah, what, well, maybe what, we should define what these, these concepts mean and like how people feel them. Right. Uh, well, that's, uh, you know, what compassion fatigue or burnout or, or all of these different things, you know, what a lot of the psychology uh, about this, particularly in the 90s, that has since been developed, uh, but what it particularly discussed was uh, compassion fatigue is emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and reduced personal achievement due to a highly emotional environment. So I'll, I'll say that one more time. <laughs> emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and reduced personal achievement due to a highly emotional environment. Yeah. I mean, that sounds exhausting just even hearing it. <laughs> it does. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> So, in layman's term, it sounds like burnout and compassion fatigue is being exhausted from caring all the time because there are so many things to care about. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, it's we as uh, as people, as primates, but as people, um, uh, have this this ability to empathize with other people uh, at a really deep level and to feel. And we we had an entire podcast on on empathy, and they should go back and listen to it. Uh, but uh, it's to feel the emotions and the things that are in the room present with the other person, perhaps. And that's from a mental health perspective, or from a clerical perspective, or from or from a, a firefighter perspective, whatever it is. It's to feel what is present, and that that gets emotionally exhausting, or can get emotionally exhausting, mm-hmm. um, if you if you don't enter in, you know, and have proper coping skills. 
Right. If we think about, if we're taking everything in from our environment and depending on what those emotions are, we only have a limited capacity to be able to cope with all of that and take that on. Mm-hmm. And once it reaches past that, our nervous system in, in essence goes, whoa, this is too much. And it shuts down most likely or goes into fight, flight, freeze. And so that's when some people even start to notice like they can't feel like they start to get really detached and and even sometimes dissociated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so like numb. Yeah. Right. The feeling of numb. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's what that emotional exhaustion really is. It's like I just feel nothing um, at yeah. times. And, and people people at least tell me, particularly in all the stress and strain of of quarantine and COVID and job loss and all the things that have kind of come in the last six months, it's it's not so much. They felt it early on. <laughs> There was a lot of feeling early on, but over time, it's just this, this, this lack of feeling and it, it, this numbness that they kind of describe. And I think that, that that's that emotional exhaustion. I think there's kind of a difference between emotional exhaustion and coming home from a long day and just feeling tired. You know, emotional mm-hmm. exhaustion, you can get emotionally exhausted from one day, but this is not quite the same thing. You can recoup from that pretty quickly. It's when you've got this, this long-term exhausting situation that is day after day after day after day, and it's just this consistent grind. It's, it's the professional that is constantly having to go into the office and, and, and sort of um, express and heal uh, people uh, therapeutically. It's, it's that exhaustion that comes from that five days a week, every day, you know, for a long mm-hmm. period of time. Or it could be the caregiver who I think, I think we see this pretty often, the caregiver who, who just feels nothing emotionally because they've been taking care of an ailing parent or a child or whatever else for years. And they just can't feel anything, anything anymore. Right. I think you highlighted um, an important point that we see this most often in like the caring professions and those who are really trying to be there for others. And I even remember at one point when I worked with a lot of caregivers, I remember doing a caregiver support group and because they were serving others, we told them, like, take your normal amount of self-care that you think the average person needs and times it by 10. Yeah. yeah. Like, that, that is what you need. And usually those people are even doing less than... Less than normal. <laughs> less than normal, exactly. And because I just, I'm supposed to be there for others. I'm fine. I'm fine. I can handle it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and then and, and we hear that. you can't. Yeah, we hear that a lot is, you know... Um, especially in that caregiver role. I, 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 I've always wanted to do a caregiver support group because I think it's just so important because at least all of the, I, I remember like all of the different kinds of groups that you read through all of these different kinds of uh, psychological groups. Mm-hmm. I always was really taken by the idea of a caregiver one because it's, it's, it's the ability, you're helping people to help other people. And I think it's just such a, such a remarkable thing. But I think there's that, that, that emotional exhaustion that then turns around and after you've reached this sort of level of emotional exhaustion, you then begin to what they say depersonalize. Yep. Um, and what, what from the literature, as I recall, this has been many years since I wrote this, but as I recall from the, the, what the research on the depersonalization says is that it's, it's not so much that I don't feel uh, connected to them. It's that I start to devalue other people out in the world. Um, or I, I start to devalue the people that come in the door. I start mm-hmm. to depersonalize them because they're just, you know, someone else uh, that I have to deal with. And, and one thing that I can say is when, I mean, I've experienced this kind of like, is this really, of course, I believe they're a person, of course, I value them. Mm-hmm. But there's been times in really high stress or really high exhaustion where it's just like, 
boy, I don't, I, I struggle to find a lot of value in the work I'm doing and the actual interaction that I have mm-hmm. with this one person. And it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a real challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I guess what I've noticed, especially right now in the kind of the phase or yeah, wherever we are within this year, like people that, you know, people have felt that a lot of compassion, a lot of empathy for what's going on. And then it kind of hit a peak. And I think people are really now feeling that compassion fatigue, that burnout. But what I'm also finding with that is now they feel guilty. They feel guilty for not feeling the same thing that they were feeling earlier. Like I should care more. Like I feel bad that I don't care as much. Or like I just don't care anymore and I feel bad about that. Yeah, exactly. So I'm finding this new phase, um, a new part of compassion fatigue. Where, Not there's, yeah, there's a, a sense of guilt. I mean, I, I've noticed that at least for me, everything in the last probably six months, well, probably the last three months and things started to kind of mm-hmm. open back up. Everything has just kind of felt like everybody is on edge. Uh, my wife was telling me that she went around a corner in a parking lot. She was driving, had the right of way and everything. And it's this guy was slamming on his horn, flipping her off. And it's like, okay, maybe one of those gestures in that situation, if she had made a mistake, would have been normal. But this guy had this just massive, like, expression of flooding that came about from that. Or, you know, out on the road. I don't know why all of my examples are always with when I'm driving. But, like, you know, it seems like everybody is just way more on edge here out mm-hmm. in the world and people are yelling at each other more and all of these things. And I think that's, that's perhaps a little bit about it. I don't know that we can say that this is entirely a result of COVID. Um, but I do think that that's kind of, we have a, a perhaps an emotionally exhausted, depersonalized, depersonalized culture now. And I, I think it's becoming more and more problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's not even right. Like if we look at what's going on in the world, it's not even just COVID. Mm-hmm. it's all kinds of stuff everybody's caring about what's happening in the country and i think it's just got people overloaded and flooded really and, and it's just then if they're having a hard time understanding how they're even feeling it's going to come out in anger mm-hmm. yeah. yeah but this day and age yeah. like we just we're not allowing ourselves that time to recalibrate yeah and i feel like um I guess I see two things in that. I see the guilt come up with I should be doing more or I should be more informed um, or I should be able to exact change in all of this. So a lot of guilt around maybe even not doing enough right now. And I think it's hard because then it's like, what does enough look like? Um, And then on the other hand, for the people that do open themselves up to feeling compassion about everything and caring, what I'm seeing even in my office is that it looks like very much like trauma. Like it's completely overwhelming and hijacking and almost to the point where if that person continued to feel all of that, like they would, they would really fall apart. Right? Like I would probably have to hospitalize them to some degree if they continue to feel all of that. Um, so yeah. it's almost like that depersonalization, that kind, 
kind of lack of, not lack of caring, but kind of backing off is almost very much needed. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I think that the other side to it, and, and we've done the three symptoms of, of compassion fatigue so far, but the last one is reduced personal achievement. Um, and I think that's, that's another kind of aspect of it because if you're, I mean, we've all probably had jobs where we just did not want to go in, right? And Monday is like, oh man, oh man, I've got to go back and do this. And, and I think, you know, there's been times, I think for everybody when that's been that way. But I think the key about it is that, that when you are in that state, you're actually reducing your overall effectiveness as a, as a, uh, as whatever, <laughs> in whatever you're doing. Um, and you're actually affecting the other times of your life as well. I mean, at least for me, when I was in that job environment, I would sit there and be like, it would come right after mass, uh, well, right after liturgy on, um, on Sunday morning. And all of a sudden I'd be starting to think about, oh, I got to go back to work tomorrow. Oh, I got to go back to work. It's, it's, I still have a quarter of the weekend to go and I'm still thinking like, oh man, I really don't want to go back to work. And I think that's, that's really a kind of temptation that we, we, we have to kind of be aware of that it, it's not just when we're in the environments that we're being depersonalized and having emotional exhaustion. It's actually time outside of work, outside of that compassionate times where we're also becoming depersonalized and emotionally exhausted. Yeah. When I hear reduced personal achievement, I think almost like a low level depressive state. Like yeah. I don't want to do anything. I just can't do anything. I don't have the energy to do anything. Mm-hmm. I've had this pile of laundry staring at me and I just cannot deal with it to, as a minor example or in a professional setting. It's, it can look like doing the bare minimum of what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm just, you start talking about like a job that everyone hates. I used to work in a deli in a grocery store, which is like the worst department in a grocery store. And it was just like <laughs> soul sucking every day I really? had to go in. This is one of my jobs in college. And it was just, you like, you have to have like the customer service. You have to get X number of things done behind the scenes. So the place functions. It was just like, I, don't want to. I just want to find a spot on the wall to stare at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's this temptation to say that people who go through compassion fatigue or burnout are like, they're not strong or they're wimps or they're like, you know, whatever else it is. And, and that is most assuredly not the case. Uh, some of the research on these kind of things, as, as we're kind of discussing, is like some of the research is that the most high achieving people in any organization are the ones who are most susceptible to burnout. Um, the highest achieving therapist, the highest achieving mm-hmm. uh, social worker, the highest achieving chaplain, whatever it might be, are the ones who are most susceptible to burnout at any given time because they are pushing, putting in the effort that is far beyond that of what um, maybe the average person who perhaps is actually taking more, uh, a better care of themselves. And, and it just also strikes me that, you know, there's plenty of biblical examples of the saints who became, who were burnt out at different times. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I, I'm reminded of, uh, of um, as, if, as if I'm not pulling up my thesis right now to read the section that I had written. <laughs> um, I, I'm reminded oh, by, uh, by, uh, <laughs> by uh, um, how Moses um, was uh, kind of having this experience of burnout at different times, you know, because the people of, he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. They're in the wanderings and he was the judge of 
everything. I mean, he was the judge of, of every dispute that happened. And it was just this constant thing. And, and he was getting more and more and more worn out by it. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I think that, you know, Jethro, Jethro, his, uh, his uh, father-in-law put it probably wise, uh, probably right. When he said, uh, what are you doing is not, what you are doing is not wise. You will surely weary yourself, uh, both you and the people with you. The task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. And, and that's for, for, <clears throat> a wise deacon therapist who wrote this uh, thesis had the kind of oh. insight that it's, it's, it's really about that kind of allowance to know your limits and then be able to set those limits and know when you've crossed a line so that you can kind of reestablish it and get help. Mm, yeah. Having healthy boundaries between what you are asked to do, what you're required to do and what other people think you should do. Yeah, I think like for me, it just brings up all kinds of just workplace stuff when I, when I think of that um, and working with so many people with, I guess, compassion, fatigue, burnout with work and feeling shameful about that because their performance is down mm -hmm. because they care so much about doing a good job and the needs of their boss or their coworkers or clients who's ever around them. Mm -hmm. And, and, tr and then they're just constantly feeling like they're not giving enough and that shame of feeling like they're not performing well. Um, but not realizing it's because of that poor boundaries or that not um, kind of stepping back and caring. Yeah. Just caring too much about it. Yeah. I don't know. It, it makes me think of my, my first job out of college, which was like my dream job that I cared far too much about. <laughs> and like, it, it was just so overwhelming that it actually made me do my job like performance wise. Like I just didn't do it as well. Like, yeah. Then that just, accumulated right like I wasn't doing as good of a job as I wanted to do and then when I left that job and went to the next one like I was so burnt out from that that I I almost like just really didn't care about this job like I still cared about doing good work but in the people I was working with but it wasn't to the degree like I didn't have that capacity anymore to care like I did the previous job Mm -hmm. yeah. or it wasn't my dream job. And I actually realized, I was like, wait, I feel like I'm just doing better work. This is awesome. <laughs> like, like, I feel so much more capable. <laughs> to bring a kind of a pop culture example, I, it kind of reminds me of The, Devil's, the Devil Wears Prada. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, ask yeah, Brittany to exactly. tell you that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and then two assistants, like uh -huh. Emily Blunt and Anne Hathaway, uh -huh. and just the way that, that one scene that um, Emily Blunt is just like staring at her computer and going, I love my job, I love my job, I love my job, trying to convince herself that she loves her job, when really she's basically starving herself and mm -hmm. exhausting herself, all so Meryl Streep doesn't scold her or fire her. Right. And, and you can see her care 
for this job and the importance of it is making her fall apart, right? She gets sick. Mm-hmm. She ends up not being able to go to Paris. Like, it's and everything is devastating to her. Yeah, and it's all affecting her performance. And here's mm-hmm. Anne Hathaway coming in, and she is... Well, just, she starts off not caring about the job. Yeah, and which then makes her in a way, like, perform better. Like, it's less emotionally exhausting. Until she gets sucked into the environment. And starts to really care. And starts to care too much, which destroys the rest of her life and all of her other relationships outside of work. Mm -hmm. Until she realizes what's happening and she quits. Yep, dramatically, in Paris. Where else are you going to quit a job? (laughs) We've totally lost... um, (laughs) <laughs> Poor Deacon Basil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> um, no, that's... Listeners, they will totally get that reference. Okay, but, great. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think I think if I if I may, uh, from what I heard, is that it's a story about uh, someone who started off not caring, got sucked into the system while being in a system that was actually burning them out to begin with. Um, and then it, it led to uh, basically the woman having to fall apart and, and withdraw herself from the, from, from the environment herself. Right. Draw herself yeah, from correct. the environment herself. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> Close enough. Yeah, that, that's pretty accurate. Good summer. Are you wearing the Chanel boots? Yeah. I, I, I wish I was. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Those were amazing. So... Uh, <laughs> Um, I think I think that's really a kind of key point is that you can have burnt out systems that are actually burning the person out um, and, and, and bring people in and burn them out. It's pathologic in the way in which the system can function. And I think that's really a kind of really important point is that it's 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 on the leadership. It's on those who are operating to be able to see what is happening to people and asking, is this just an individual issue? Or is this an issue of the larger system, the larger company, the larger organization, right. the larger church, the larger parish? Yeah. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's a really important question to how do you recognize it? Is it me or is it the company or yeah. the organization? Or I guess what I see is that if you have a boss or if there are other people higher up in that that have are consumed by it, right, that are mm-hmm. um, almost in a way have too much compassion or caring or they're too invested. They're too invested. Yeah, that's a great word. Um, what they do is they expect and want to draw other people into that same experience with them. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, is then that expectation, right? Then other people take that on because if they feel like if they don't enter into that, if they don't care to that same degree and put in that much effort and completely destroy any work-life balance boundaries um, that they will get fired or will seen as less and get criticized. Well, you're just, you're just not a team player. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've heard that it, a lot. Yeah. Seen that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of environments like, like hospitals or schools where teachers are expected to give more outside of the school hours. Um, or teachers themselves who want to give more and more and more, and they're expected to do it. Well, for the kids, it's for the kids. Don't you care about the kids? And really, it's a job, and you need boundaries um, between where it begins and where it ends, because your identity cannot be 
I'm a teacher and I care about the kids. It's like, I'm a teacher. This is my living. This is what I do for a job. I have these other interests and hobbies outside of those hours. To be a whole person. Like, systems that really draw you in expect the system and the cause to be your identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the, the other side about it as well is that that cause is a matter of wanting things, wanting things, prestige, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's desire, which of course we, we have a certain level of desire in every aspect of our lives. But I think we have to really kind of clarify what is the desire that is actually animating me? Like what is the meaning that I get out of, out of these things? And, and for example, if I, if I ship a new package or whatever else, does that really like emotionally change me? And I think that that, what it does is we have to put kind of the entire vision of, of meaning to continue us through the, the, whatever process we're in. What is the meaning behind what I'm doing on a daily basis? Mm, yeah. Am I, I doing this for, for recognition, for prestige? Mm-hmm. Um, so other people think well of me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes me go back to um, thinking of like the four tendencies by Gretchen Rubin, if anybody's heard of that. Mm-hmm. Of, like people, people doing things out of either obligation or because they're a rule follower or the other two are questioner and rebellion rebel so they they'll get invested in anything that um is opposite of what other people want them to do Mm. yeah (laughs) i I mean i think that's pretty clear (laughs) Um. but some of the, the the two major ones that i see in compassion fatigue is either doing things at a simply that's what I have to do um, with obligation or what I should do um, or simply because I was told to, and that's the role. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So in light of that, what do we do about it? (laughs) Boundaries. I make everyone read boundaries. Yeah. Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend. Uh, sh- the link is down in the show notes. We should do a talk just on specifically about that book. I think it's really. I important. love that book so much. Yeah, I, I I have like I've had a mix of I recommend. I guess I should step back and say I recommended this book so many times to clients, and I have a mixed review of it. Mm. I either have people like read it and like it, but liking it. And realizing it is so much different than implementing it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like whenever I say the word boundaries in a session or with somebody, it's like the natural reaction is to cringe. Like boundaries. Mm. Like, yeah. why, why do you think that is? I think it's because people have the wrong idea of what boundaries mean. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, actually, they talk about the example of most people think boundaries means a wall. So nothing can get in and nothing can get out. Um, mm-hmm. Like a castle wall. And really, boundaries are supposed to be more like a gate where you are the one in charge of letting things in or not. So I think, I think people are afraid because they aren't quite sure what boundaries are to mm-hmm. begin with. Because we kind of live in a culture that doesn't respect boundaries and doesn't 
teach us to build them. Yeah, I would agree. And so it just seems so foreign and so difficult. And then the other side to that is they don't want to make people upset. Yeah. Well, if I say no, then that's not very nice. And I want to be a nice person. Right. I also hate the word nice. Yeah. I think there's this, uh, this idea that if you set boundaries, you're somehow impeding the other person to be able Mm -hmm. to have some kind of connection with you. Um, so if Mm -hmm. I say, look, I'm, I, I'm walking out the door at 5 PM, um, might be one example of it. Like I just have to be out the door by 5 PM. People assume that that's like, you know, well, what about all the other time? You know, we had this great conversation at seven 30 last, you know, last week. Mm -hmm. But, but, but the key about it is, yeah, there will always be opportunities for, you know, those kind of things. The boundary is to say, I need to set this because of where I'm at um, in my life at this point, And it's what's best for me. And paradoxically, that's what's going to be good for, for all of you. If I have healthy boundaries, that's going to be best for you as well. Uh, because of our relationship. Because if right. I'm being, if I'm maintaining healthy boundaries, that allows me to appropriately approach you and allows you to know when to approach me. Right. And not have the level of um, resentment or contempt or whatever else it might be because I'm burnt out and Mm -hmm. I'm angry at you. But I, if I set the proper boundary, then it won't, it won't Mm -hmm. be overcome like that. So I think, I think there's definitely this idea of boundaries. The other one that kind of came up for me um, was the idea of having someone, maybe we call it a, a therapist, a spiritual director, a spiritual father, a, you know, a, a, a spouse, whatever it might be. I'm sorry, is that, is that liquor? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it's okay. True. Okay, I love the coffee. bottle. It, it, it is liquor. Okay. <laughs> okay, it, it's coffee liquor. It's Saturday, so you're fine. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> I just totally I like I was like, I'm them. done with this crap. Sheree, <laughs> <laughs> I love you. This is called what you do when you have compassion to do. You have compassion. <laughs> <laughs> we are not advocating alcoholism. <laughs> no, no, not no. at all. Um, but right, I so think, as you were saying. Uh, the, the idea of a spiritual father, a, a therapist, uh, a, a spouse, someone which uh, using an EFT lens, a secure base yeah. that you can say, okay, I have, even if I had a hellish day, I can come home and I can be around my spouse. Um, or even if I've had a hellish day, um, I know I have a right. therapy session tomorrow or whatever else it might be. You have a secure base to be able to then branch out into the world. So. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of having like a safe base, a secure, something secure that you can rely on, like no matter what, I know this will be there. Yeah. I don't think, I, don't, I think we need to like really define what secure base means because I don't think that's, a lot of people know what that is or have that. Right. Well, mm-hmm. I, I would, I would refer them to our podcast specifically about EFT in general, but uh, emotionally focused therapy. But I think maybe a quick summary about it is 
a secure base is to have a, a low avoidance. So I'm going to not try and avoid the other person. I want to be around them. I want to be in their presence, mm-hmm. but I'm also really, they're not the kind of person that leads me to be really anxious. You know, yeah. you can not, you can really want to be around someone, but the relationship is really of such a type that it makes you really anxious and makes you, you know, freak out. That's yeah. not what this is. It's the ability to say, it makes me a better person because I have a relationship like this right. in my life. It's calm. It's grounding. It's, it's kind of just somebody you can come home to and maybe sit on the couch with, even if it's just a friend. Yeah. And pragmatics yeah. are really good at this in relationships to use the, um, the four temperaments as an example. Mm-hmm. Phlegmatics are great. I, my, one of my roommates is a phlegmatic and she's just like, okay, great. Do you want a hug? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think the, the, the key about it is that the, the other side to it is you need more than just one secure base at times. Um, <laughs> because if you're having issues at your job and you're having issues at home with your spouse, you need a friend that you can call and be like, I'm really losing it right now. <laughs> you need mm-hmm. a friend, you need you know, people. So, so whoever it is, whether it be professional or pastoral or personal, um, you need, well, you probably need one in all of those areas. It's yeah, all three. One, you yeah. need all three. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I find when people don't have that if at home or in friendships, that that's when really those outside therapists, um, counselor, spiritual director, priest, somebody who can be a secure base and kind of really reach out to develop those. Um, yeah, because if, if you're experiencing compassion fatigue and then coming home and everything's chaotic and avoidant and anxious, then that's, there's nothing that's ever going to make you feel calm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, think, I think that idea of, of the, the other support, but also just a really good hard look at yourself. Um, you know, we've described it as, as what is the desire? What's the, what's the meaning that you can have, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but, but a really good hard look at saying like, why am I honestly so concerned about this job, whatever it might be? Why am I honestly so in, in such a place where this is the only thing that is of value? Why am I putting in 40 grueling hours, um, every week for this job or more? Um, if what, what's the honest reason behind that? And, and typically that's a good staring at yourself um, Mm -hmm. and kind of a realization of it within your own life. Yeah. I, sorry, Sarah. Okay. I I guess this is like where I like to direct people from, because when they talk about it, that's when all the shoulds come out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I should do this and I have to do this for whether it's for work or for somebody else. And I go, okay, anytime you say that, I want you to replace it with want. And and I think a, a good example that I've had recently is somebody did that like at the end of the workday. Well, I should stay later to finish this project. And so they tried that exercise of replacing it with want. And they said, okay, I want to stay late to finish this project. And they realized they didn't want to do that. And so they chose to go home. Yeah. So proud of that person right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it, it shifted things, right? Like of realizing, wait, do I really want to do that? Do I not want to do that? And maybe they do want to do that because they want to feel relieved in the evening and they want less work for the next day. But then it's important to, to realize you're choosing that um, mm-hmm. and choosing to have less free time that evening. Yeah. I love that because it also, 
what I was going to say um, before was about self-judgment. And so that was like a perfect segue. I love how that exercise reframes it from a, a judging stance. Like I should do this. And if I don't, I'm a bad person. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, if you want to do something, we typically want to do things that are good for us or we think are good for us at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so reframing that as, oh no, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound good to me. Like allows us to break free of the judgment zone and be human. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things that I've learned um, like in counseling is just the principle of non-judgment. Yeah. Even for ourselves. It's like, I do these things that may or may not be good for me. The consequences are not good for me. But once I pause and I figure out why I do these things, then I'm able to say, oh, okay, that makes sense. I'm sorry I feel that way. Or I'm sorry that I'm going through this. And extending that to yourself and to others allows them to relax a little bit and just like stop holding on the weight of their sins and their judgments. So I think with compassion fatigue, like the I should care about this more or I should be doing more about this cause Mm -hmm. Um, saying like stepping back like do you want to do more for this cause do you actually want to do something or is it something that you feel weighed down by or can right like can can I can I even do something yeah I I reminded of that um, that passage uh, that well that that conversation we had about like kind of pathological cultural inv- uh, organizations, and mm-hmm. I think that really one of the the kind of key ways of of working on burnout with that is first off recognizing that it is definitely a temptation and an issue. Um, there is no organization that can't have a burnt out person at the helm or a burnt out member of it. Everybody can be burnt out at different times and probably will. We have to recognize that that's always going to be there. But I, I'm reminded in particular of this, this one book. Um, it was actually uh, a psychologist out of uh, St. Louis who wrote it. Um, Robert Fury, I, uh, I think, um, is how we, you pronounce it. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, he was a, uh, he's a psychologist who um, wrote a book called The Art of Affirmation. Um, which is about kind of the idea and his experience in a community mental health field, uh, excuse me, community mental health uh, organization, um, which was really difficult and pathologic. And they were like bringing in psychologists and to kind of help them, you know, to help a bunch of psychologists figure out how to uh, properly, you know, work with each other and, and, and become, you know, more happy and everything and uh, in, the, in their jobs and, and not have this. And one intern just started to say, well, we just need to be more affirming here and talk about what's going right in each other, you know, and what they notice about what's going right with each other. And I think that's such a a powerful kind of transition. He said it changed everything in that organization. And I think, you know, when was the last time I told someone in my job, in my parish, in my family, even what they were doing right. And what I noticed is a real kind of valid affirmation. And if I'm honest with myself, it's probably been a lot longer than it should have been. All right. Well, I know what I'm texting your wife after we were done yeah. talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but I'm curious, like that yeah. idea of a positive psychology sort of affirmation environment. Mm-hmm. 
Right, kind of that idea of we we typically point out things that we're doing wrong or need or want to be accomplished versus reflecting, hey, this was awesome or thanks Mm -hmm. for doing this. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. We're more drawn towards commenting on the broken than on the on the growth. And I think that's because we have a culture of like not shame around pride, but like you shouldn't be proud of yourself. We're, we're really harsh on arrogance and we rely a lot on false humility and people don't know how to accept compliments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, I think we should probably leave it there, but I think the, the key about it is that it's, it's, it's a, a process of, Every, a temptation for everyone mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a big problem and there are things yeah. that could be worked on with it and uh and and seeking professional help i yeah. mean there's it's not like this is something we haven't worked with <laughs> burnt out people before <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. and a lot of organizations offer I, um ebts and things like that yeah ebt what? What, are, uh, EA, what EAPs, EAPs, e, employee assistance um, programs. Yeah, I don't know. We don't take yeah. it, but um, there's a lot of employers that offer that and all sorts of things um, that are available. So, so there's a lot of resources out there. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say one one last thing is is again self care, and I find that people who do finally start accepting that as something that is good for them, and you know, and start actually making that a priority and that being more satisfied with how they're showing up and caring uh, for others. So. Yes. Yeah. If you are caring for others, you too deserve to be cared for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Well, we will see you next time on the Catholic Psyche Podcast.